It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one if you find it of interest. Today, I have as my guest the former vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. We talk about a lot of different things, including his perspective on the defendants who are still fighting to get out of jail post-January 6th. His perspective on the movement of conservatism and what he believes ought to be prioritized going forward. Mike Pence is someone who has, you know, obviously become a much more controversial person since the end of uh, the uh, Trump tenure in office. I found him to be someone who, you know, really can speak quite honestly about a lot of different things. I think that he's someone who's very interesting because he's very firm in his beliefs. He's not someone who's going to shift based on uh, the winds or on the polls. He's someone who believes what he believes, uh, and he's going to stick to it. Mike Pence, coming up next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Mr. Vice President, Mike Pence, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Uh, Ben, thanks for having me on the podcast. Great to hear your voice, and it's an honor to be on. It really is. Uh, I want to ask you a question. I was trying to think through a question that you haven't been asked yet in recent months, because I feel like you've been asked a ton, and I couldn't find if you'd answered this one. Which (laughs) vice president do you admire the most? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, I I will tell you that I'm pretty biased towards uh, our first vice president, John Adams. Uh, Had a portrait of him uh, in my office. And of course, I'm close personal friends with former vice president uh, Dan Quayle, who's also from Indiana. But uh, during the campaign in 2016, Ben, I was asked that who I might best try and emulate. And, And candidly, uh, my mind went to uh, former Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush, mm-hmm. um, who was someone who came up uh, through a, you know, a traditional pathway in the Republican Party, served in administrations, um, you know, had experience that was more traditional, and then he he was uh, he became Vice President uh, to an outsider uh, governor from California who. Uh, was the reason why I became a Republican. I, I joined the Reagan Revolution, uh, having started in politics as a young Democrat. And, but I, I just thought that uh, the way that Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush carried himself was something that I would try and emulate. And I, and as I reflected at the time of his passing to his family and publicly, I, uh, I sought to do just that. It's the inside-outside game, in, in a way, um, that, that seemed to be you know, very critical in terms of getting anything done. You know, we see right now in Washington this battle that's going to come over the debt limit and fiscal sanity. And one of the things that seems very interesting to me in in terms of looking at 
poll data that's out from the American Action Network and there's a couple of other polls as well. You know, the American people still seem to have an appetite for fiscal conservatism on some level. They talk about, you know, numbers that are in the you know high 60s or in the 70s, depending on how you ask the question about raising a debt limit um, and making cuts. Why is Washington so bad at delivering on what people claim to want uh, and uh, and having anything in terms of a representation of consistent fiscal conservatism on spending? Well, Ben, you, you couldn't be more right. As I've traveled around the country since moving home to Indiana two years ago, um, the Republican Party is still seen as as the party of fiscal responsibility. And now, I, I will tell you that um, that you know I, I uh, I'm proud of the record of the Trump Pence administration of what we did in increasing defense spending after years of budget uh, cutbacks. Uh, and, and I believe what we did in the course of the pandemic to come alongside families and businesses uh, in, in the midst of, uh, of the worst pandemic in 100 years was right and proper. But in between those two things, I don't think we did a very good job restraining spending. Um, and as I've traveled across the country, I, I hear more and more Americans realizing that we we cannot sustain the path that we're on today. We have a national debt the size of our nation's economy for the first time since World War II, but it, it's really just a down payment on a trajectory that that could result in in your children and my grandchildren facing not a mountain of debt in 25 years, but a mountain range of debt. And so it's one of the reasons why I've uh, I've been doing my part. Um, uh, to try and be a voice for returning to the principles of fiscal discipline, limited government, and also being willing to have a conversation uh, in the long term uh, about how we reform the entitlement programs that today are more than 70% of the federal budget. I, I, I've been in that fight for a while. You know, mm -hmm. I've been a cheerful conservative since my days in Congress. We tried to do Social Security reform back in 2005. Uh, but frankly, today, with the with the national debt where it has been, I believe there's an opportunity to bring Americans together around uh, common sense and compassionate reforms for younger Americans in those programs. So our fiscal solvency. So I want to I want to express to you without any anim animosity towards you personally, there is definitely a feeling among uh, millennial and younger people that the baby boomers basically held out as long as they could and continue to hold out in terms of political leadership on the entitlement reform question in a way that has only served to get more money for them in a way that our children will be denied that 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 money going to them you know you talk about social security obviously you know reforming medicare reforming some of these other programs there's they're much more complicated but social security is essentially a math problem of just how old you know are you going to be when you start getting these checks the unwillingness to budge on that, even as human American lifespans, to our credit, I mean, it's a great thing that people are living right. longer. But these programs right. were not designed to sustain you for that long. We, there's a resentment there, and it doesn't seem like, you know, especially given the vocal ways that, you know, uh, former President Trump is going after, you know, for instance, Florida Governor DeSantis for voting for things that I know that, you know, you supported, fiscal conservative supported, Paul Ryan supported in terms of trying to fix entitlements is there is there any path forward given that some of the vocal leaders in the party basically have this attitude of these things are completely off limits we can't even 
adjust right. the age range on that kind of gradual monthly basis. Well, it's actually worse than that when you get to Joe Biden. And Joe Biden's oh, policy gosh. is insolvency. I mean, right now, Ben, uh, your listeners deserve to know, there's about 70 members of the Senate signed on to a bill that would do nothing more than bring parties together to talk about responsible entitlement reform. Nothing, nothing could go under the bill. Nothing could go to the floor unless the leaders of both parties signed off on it. And so there's a there's a stopgap against it. Partisan games being played. Joe Biden won't even support that. And and it's astonishing to think that an 80 year old president of the United States uh, and and uh, and frankly, Mike, you know, the president with whom I served uh, are part of a generation that essentially saying we're not even going to discuss the possibility of common sense and compassionate reforms. And I, I really do believe this is one of the issues that your generation gets uh, at a level that that is not fully appreciated by people in, in my generation and older. I You know, I'm on the tail end of the baby boom. I was born in 1959. And uh, I will tell you that uh, we've always heard about the third rail, you know, Ben, that you're mm -hmm. from a great political pedigree, as does your amazing wife. And there's always that you can't touch that third rail. But I, I got to tell you, when I've been talking about this over the last two years, I've had more and more younger Americans coming up to me and saying, thank you. Thank you for being willing to be straight with us about the realities, because if we don't do anything, uh, those little kids you have and I've got I've got grandchildren that are your kids age. I mean, if, if we wait 25 years to deal with this issue. Uh, they will only have bad choices. You talk to budget experts, they will tell you they're either going to double payroll taxes in 25 years, introduce a, a VAT, a European style a taxation system, or they'll be faced with actually cutting programs that people depend on. But it, you if, know, if, we, if we, I said this sounds like a little bit of an infomercial, but if we act now, <laughs> if we act now, we, we can actually do things that don't affect anybody. In retirement today, or will retirement retire in the next twenty-five years. But actually, here's my line: I like to say we can take the New Deal programs and give younger Americans a better deal, including a healthy American economy and a fiscal foundation that allows us to provide for all the needs of the country, including our national defense, in the decades ahead. You know, there's a you talk about the third rail of American politics, and yeah. uh, and I. Uh, I hope I don't offend you with this analogy, but uh, I occasionally, you know, use, uh, you know, communication between different people is sometimes used gifts or emojis or things like that to stand in for various expressions. And one that I have used more often than not in discussing a particular approach you have taken is the gift of the skinny young Captain America jumping on top of a grenade. <laughs> And it feels like when it comes to so many different issues that you confront, you are jumping on top of that grenade. You're, you know, of course, in the context of that movie, you know, it's a grenade that doesn't go off. But but do you feel like that's kind of your role in American politics right now where you're you're taking the hard issue, whether it be the you know, whether it be defense spending, whether it be entitlement reform, whether it be the abortion issue that every consultant is telling people to run away with. And you're just sort of saying, I'm going to jump on that. <laughs> well, look, I, you know, honestly, it, it, you know, look, when you're vice president of the United States, I always had the view the job of the vice president is to take a half step back 
and in every way support the president. You know, as I said in my recent autobiography, Ben, I was always loyal to President Donald Trump. He was my president. He was my friend. I only had one higher loyalty. That was to God and the Constitution. Uh, and that would that would precipitate a, the confrontation that we went through at the end of the administration and uh, and and much of what continues to separate us uh, to this day. But but as you know, you followed me for some time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I look, I it took me 10 years to get to Congress. Once I got there, I was absolutely determined uh, to stand for the agenda that had drawn me to the Republican Party, which is an unwavering commitment to a strong national defense, to American leadership in the world, a commitment to fiscal responsibility and, and a limited federal government that, that in relentlessly drives toward a balanced federal budget, a commitment to traditional values, most especially the sanctity of human life. And so those are things I always was about, yeah. proud that our administration advanced many of those causes during my time as vice president. But um, but your your perception, your gif about me makes me smile. But I would tell is it's just Mike Pence getting back to being Mike Pence. <laughs> well, no, I and, and yes, I do remember. I remember <laughs> when you were coming to the 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 uh, when you came to the ATR meeting as Rush Limbaugh on decaf. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, the, the the question that I have for you, though, about that, and you br you bring up the, the end of the administration. Sure. Um, you know, it seems to me that the public actually does want a reckoning on this that is not like what we saw from the, you know, Cheney, Kinzinger, Democrat uh, commission. Um, right. They do actually want to have some kind of resolution on this. It's it's like a it's like a festering kind of thing there. It's it's a it's a or a, a scab that just won't go away and heal. How do you deal with that personally? Because I know it's something that you have to care about deeply, and I'm sure that your family cares about. Um, and and do you feel that sort of there's been uh, that in a way this thing has been perverted by a lot of different people who have different agendas involved, um, different agendas about both what they want that final sort of uh, the period to be about, what they want January sixth to be about. Uh, and and also ignoring kind of the the important lessons about what went on with it. Well, first off, I I just have faith. You know, I know in my heart of hearts on January sixth that by God's grace we did our duty that day. You know, I I had no right to overturn the election. No vice president in, in American history had ever claimed the authority to reject electoral college votes or return them to the states and. Uh, I was determined to do my duty that day, and uh, uh, and and I believe we did our duty that day, mm -hmm. and, um, and I've I've spoken openly and plainly about that. Um, and the other thing is, I, I have faith in the American people that, as I've traveled over the last two years, I do know that that uh, that this issue, you know, continues to to play out in in Republican circles, and it continues to be a preoccupation of many in the national media. But two things I would observe to you, Ben, as I've traveled around the country, I've been heartened as I was last night in uh, in, in Orange County. A big crowd turned out. Uh, uh, I've been heartened how many people have made a point in the last two years to thank me for what we did that day. Mm -hmm. um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm, I always say, you know, it was a it was a privilege, and they they express appreciation for that. And I'm talking about Republicans. Mm -hmm. 
uh, conservative Republicans. I'm talking about independents. I'm talking about many Democrats who've walked up and begun a conversation at an airport by going, hey, man, I don't agree with anything you stand for, but thanks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think it shows that the American people cherish our Constitution. They cherish um, the notion that every one of us raises our right hand and, and takes an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And, and I, I really do believe that going forward as a country, and I think you saw some of this in the midterm elections, Ben. I really yeah. do. That, you know, candidates that were focused on the future, that were focused on offering positive conservative solutions to the disastrous record of the Biden administration did very well. I mean, in statewide races and in congressional races, but candidates that were focused on the past, candidates that were focused on relitigating the last election did not do well. And uh, and so I, I really do believe that that everything I see is that uh, the American people want to they want to learn the lessons of that day. They want to make sure it never happens again. Uh, but I think they're they long for leadership that will reaffirm our commitment to the Constitution, to holding up that charter as as the unifying foundation on which all of us stand, but also have leadership that focuses on the challenge they and their families are facing today. Two questions about your feelings. Uh, One, obviously the person who is advocating most vociferously for this view, of course, I am in agreement with you on it, uh, is the attorney John Eastman, uh, who, you know, has uh, been, you know, sort of targeted in a way you know obviously he asked for a pardon there was a lot of other details what do you think of him and how do you feel about the advice that he was giving at the time and secondly you know there's a lot of animosity toward uh the government for the way and the doj for the way that they've treated some of these uh january 6th defendants do you believe that they've been treated fairly uh and uh, what kind of level in terms of of any kind of uh, acceptance that, you know, there are certain people who kind of went along with the flow here, but may not have actually, you know, engaged in violent behavior, you know, what should our attitude be toward them? Well, I think, let me take the second one first and say that clearly uh, everyone who engaged in, in violence that day against law enforcement officers who engaged, who vandalized our nation's capital that day. Mm -hmm. I, I said that day and have never wavered that they need to be held to the fullest account of the law. I, Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all entitled uh, to to uh, due process. I've I've been troubled to hear accusations that some people have, uh, you know, have been have been um, you know not treated in a manner consistent with the law during incarceration. And I would fully support uh, a review of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, there's no question there were people that were swept up in the moment that day. That it's uh, that uh, I, I have no doubt in my mind that there were people that that. Uh, uh, that did not come with with violent or nefarious in, intent, and uh, and and I think that the attempt to paint with a broad brush everyone who came to Washington that day, mm-hmm. um, and and frankly paint the entire Republican Party, yeah, <laughs> the way Democrats have tried to paint the Republican Party is one of the reasons why the the partisan January sixth committee fell flat. It's one of the reasons why uh, I think uh, an issue that we could have looked into in a truly nonpartisan way, you know, mm-hmm. has really divided along partisan lines and understandably so. I mean, the, 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 the notion that, that, uh, that every Republican in America fell in, in the category of those that did 
that did violence that day uh, is, is part of a, the rhetoric that's come out of the Democratic Party and this administration. And it's just unacceptable. You know, my view always was what should have happened is what happened after 9-11. I was in Washington uh, on September 11, 2001. And after the fact, uh, we created a uh, uh, truly bipartisan and effectively nonpartisan commission to look into what happened that day. And in the aftermath of the January 6th committee, you know, that even some of the senior staff members conceded the fact that they didn't look very deeply into security and intelligence failures. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, but the, I think every American, uh, you know, was was deeply troubled at what happened that day, believes people should be held to fullest account of the law. But uh, but more facts, understanding what happened so we can make sure it never happens again has got to be the priority. Uh, with regard to uh, the attorney you mentioned and other attorneys uh, that were advising the president uh, in those waning days of the administration, you know, I, I said in my book, I, you know, that I I, uh, I I have a particular enduring level of of uh, frustration uh, about attorneys who not only shouldn't have been in the Oval Office, they never should have been let on the property. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were coming in telling the president uh, while he had he had senior legal counsel, uh, great outside advisors uh, like Jay Sekulow and others, great uh, internal uh, advisors like general counsel that will te were telling him uh, what the facts were, what the status of, uh, of, of legal challenges that had been brought were, and then ultimately what my role was. But uh, uh, there, was a, there was this gaggle of attorneys that were allowed in uh, that told the president, as the Bible says, what his itching ears wanted to hear. <laughs> and I, I think history will hold them accountable for that. I, I you know, in in my book, I recount a conversation uh, where uh, uh, it was in the waning days leading into January six, where uh, uh, I, I was able to call John Eastman out and prove in front of the president that he he didn't even believe what he was telling me mm -hmm. uh, was that he was. He was offering speculative legal theories to the president of the United States going into a, a solemn constitutional process. And mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think there, there, there will continue to be an accounting uh, for that, and there should be. But, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the American people deserve to know what happened that day. They deserve to know why it happened and, and, uh, and make sure that it never happens again. And, you know, the last thing I'd say is, you know, there there were voting irregularities that took place in a half a dozen states, Ben. I mean, mm -hmm. there were states that changed the rules um, in the name of COVID, and the, but ultimately the courts upheld those changes. And um, uh, and uh, I, I hold the view that uh, we need to continue to advance the cause of election integrity on a state by state basis to ensure the American people have confidence in in one person one vote that's at the heart of our democracy and our republic and i'll continue to be a voice for that you know back in the 2000s the you know when you were sort of coming into the the congressional scene i don't think anybody would have predicted that we would be confronting a left-wing ideology today a a dominant in some ways progressive cultural viewpoint that denies the basic truths about human nature and biology and the differences between men and women. Um, I know how deep your faith is. How do you confront that um, by calling out the sin of that, you know, uh, 
horrible, you know, culturally violative, you know, uh, act of, of, uh, you know, pretending that these are, are things that can be just thrown out, uh, while also not, uh, contributing to, you know, what people, what the leftist agenda would call some kind of, uh, you know, anti, anti-trans individual agenda, um, you know, in the sense of, of encouraging any kind of, uh, violence or anything like that. Now, I, personally would maintain that that is mostly a fiction invented by the media but i do understand that you know this is something that a lot of my faithful friends uh find to be very troubling well ben you know my faith teaches me that male and female he created them Mm -hmm. and uh, common sense tells me that uh, uh, boys can't become girls and girls can't become boys and i i believe that the overwhelming majority of americans whatever their politics understand and believe that. Uh, I think there's two priorities uh, in this area, and uh, one of which our foundation in Washington has weighed in on uh, in the uh, uh, A Circuit Court of Appeals. And that is, we, we got to protect our kids uh, mm-hmm. from this, this radical gender ideology in our schools. It was a school in Iowa where uh, a student had to have a, a signed uh, note from their parents to get an aspirin from the school nurse, but they could get a gender transition plan without ever notifying their parents. We, we, we've got to put an end to that. Uh, we've got to protect uh, minor children against this radical uh, gender ideology. And I'll continue to be uh, a voice uh, for that going forward. Secondly, I will tell you as, a, uh, you know, as, as the dad of a couple of girls uh, that did some sports and that we got to protect women's sports in this country. <laughs> we, I mean, the, the women's athletics have made incredible strides in the last 50 years, leveling the playing field literally and figuratively with men's sports. It's opened up academic opportunities, professional opportunities for women. Uh, and, and the very notion that that a, that a mediocre male performer in swimming uh, could uh, announce that he is a girl uh, and compete in collegiate women's sports and and run away with uh, with, you know, with all the blue ribbons. It, it just. I think it's it's uh, I think it's offensive to anyone who cherishes the incredible progress in women's sports uh, that we've made. So I'm I'm going to continue to be a voice uh, on those things. It's about kids. It's about women's sports, and mm. and ultimately it is about religious freedom. It's about uh, the ability to believe, as I started, that male and female he created them, uh, and uh, uh, and increasingly what we're seeing in the secular radical left in this country is an antipathy toward traditional uh, Judeo-Christian views. And uh, and we simply have got to stand up every day for our first freedom, which is the freedom of religion. Uh, I With the uh, last question, I wanted to ask you about uh, your perspective on foreign policy. You know, obviously, one of the big changes that's uh, you know happened in terms of uh, the Republican coalition over the past couple of years has been a reframing of foreign policy in the post George W. Bush era. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about what America first foreign policy looks like uh, as it comes to, you know, obviously currently the issue of Ukraine, but people looking out to the future and the issues associated with Taiwan. What's your perspective on what an America first policy looks like toward both of these situations? And what should we be doing now uh, to prevent the kind of, you know, great Pacific war that could happen in the coming years? Well, look, America is the leader of the free world. If America is not leading, the free world's not being led. 
and we're the arsenal of democracy. And since the days of Ronald Reagan, um, when he first articulated what came to be known as the Reagan Doctrine, uh, American policy has always been, look, if you're willing to fight the communists in your country, we'll give you what you need to fight them there so we don't have to fight them here. It was part and parcel of what, what facilitated the unraveling of the Soviet Union. And it's one of the reasons why I, over the last year, including a year ago when my wife and I traveled into Ukraine after the initiation of hostilities and visited a refugee center just across the border from Poland, uh, I, I've tried to be a, an unwavering voice for support by the United States and our Western allies uh, for the Ukrainian military. I, I think it's absolutely essential. I think the Biden administration has been slow uh, in providing uh, the military means to the Ukrainian military, and, and they continue to be slow uh, and need to accelerate that. But I, I, at the end of the day, I think Ukraine is not our war but freedom is our fight. And uh, I also believe the best way to restrain uh, the uh, malign ambitions of communist China uh, in the Asia Pacific, and particularly with regard to Taiwan, uh, is to have a victory for freedom in Eastern Europe for the Ukrainian people reclaiming their country and reclaiming their sovereignty. I, we, we simply need to stand against the notion uh, of authoritarian regimes redrawing international lines by force. We need to stand uh, with uh, freedom-loving nations, and uh, I'll continue to be a voice for that, Ben. Mm -hmm. uh, Vice President Pence, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, great to be on the podcast, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I have a piece out at thespectator.com, where I'm editor-at-large today, on the positioning of the movement called The New Right. There's a whole group that has been completely engaged in the idea that there is a realignment happening in American politics, one that will bring a left-of-center economic perspective with a hardcore social conservative right in a way that redefines what it means to be right-of-center in America. This is something that has involved a lot of different people, both within the media space and the think tank space, in the policy space, and even in the elected politics space. But that's something that hasn't really happened yet. From my perspective, it's because the realigners got a lot of things wrong about their assumptions about America. And one of the things that I think is really you know, informative about looking at their approach to this has been the decisions that they've made in trying to influence a lot of different folks. I think that it's one of these situations where you know, the eggheads of a particular perspective simply didn't appreciate or understand how much they needed to convince the public of their own views in order to move them in their direction. Just to read a portion of this to you. From the beginning, the forces of realignment have assumed too much about the inevitability of their project. The arrival of the Trumpian moment in 2016 appeared to be a golden opportunity for dissatisfied conservatives. If you disliked old guard, big business republicanism, Tea Party fiscal policy, or the hawkish GOP foreign policy establishment, you hoped the post-Trump GOP would become a vehicle for, well, whatever it was you always wanted. Instead of championing military spending and confrontation with Russia and China, the GOP would turn dovish. Instead of being the party of the Chamber of Commerce and right to work, it would become the party of more powerful unions. Instead of touting supply-side economic policy that sought to cut back on entitlements and lower taxes, 
it would consider joining with the left to fund bigger social programs with taxes on the wealthy. Yet their endeavor took shape as an approach utterly at odds with the populist nature of its aspirations. Rather than engage in a popular activist project like the Tea Party, the realignment appeared to be designed around think tanks and panels and long overwritten essays. It was as if the nerds had decided that the way to guide the conservative movement away from the orthodoxy of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page was through the op-ed pages of the New York Times. One abiding element of the realignment's failure is the strangely unmerited self-importance of the new right. They have elected almost no one who espouses their views, not even Donald Trump. If you come out of a friendly electoral cycle where you espouse your popularity and inevitability by adding one sympathetic senator in J.D. Vance, that's typically viewed as a failure. They talk about Hungary as if it were self-evident the way, uh, self-evidently the way of the future, many of them while accepting payment from said country's government, seemingly unaware that this is something no actual American conservative voter they claim to speak for will point to as an aspiration. All their talk of the return of the strong gods and a based MAGA majority is characteristically unintelligible and at odds with reality. In March, a Wall Street Journal poll suggested that young Americans' only real priority anymore is money, a depressing but powerful rejoinder to their argument that things are moving inevitably in the new right's direction. And yet they act like teenagers in a creative writing class, convinced they've already written the best screenplay ever and have nothing to learn. The new right are trying to persuade political elites, thereby hoping they can impose their ideas on the movement, the party, and the country in short order. Like wokeism on the left, the battle over the realignment is a fight between a small number of weird, rich, mostly white extremists. Nobody cares about Hungary as a model for the American right any more than they care about Maduro as a model for the American left. It all amounts to a tempest in a red solo cup. Not that most new right intellectuals would get that reference. Nevertheless, a whole cohort of academics, commentators, intellectuals, policy experts, and would-be thought leaders began building up the case for their desired realignment. They founded journals, wrote essays, recorded podcasts, organized open letters to no one in particular, and hosted many, many conferences where overlapping groups of people gathered to give each other awards. And as intellectuals do, along the way, they engaged in fractious, embittered, and largely pointless personal feuds. You can read about all of this at The Spectator, thespectator.com, and I hope that you'll give it a chance and share it if you find it of interest. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.